Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 13. This will be our third installment in our series in the book of 1 Kings. And uh, we're going to have kind of a lengthy reading today, so I won't make you stand up for, for the entire reading. But we're going to read verses 1 through 24 together, and then we'll skip down to the end of the chapter and read the last two verses, verses 33 and 34. 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 through 24, and then 33 34. Hear the word of the Lord. A man of God came, however, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. The man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah, and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. He gave a sign that day, and he said, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart, and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. When the king heard the message that the man of God had cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him. But the hand he stretched out against him withered, and he could not pull it back to himself. The altar was ripped apart and the ashes poured from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king responded to the man of God, Plead for the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God pleaded for the favor of the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it had been at first. Then the king declared to the man of God, Come home with me, refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God replied, If you were to give me half your house, I still wouldn't go with you, and I wouldn't eat food or drink water in this place. For this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat food or drink water or go back the way you came. So he went another way. He did not go back the way, by the way he had come to Bethel. Now a certain old prophet was living in Bethel. His son came and told him all the deeds that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. His sons also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. Then their father asked them, which way did he go? His sons had seen the way taken by the man of God who had come from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he got on it. He followed the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. And he asked him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he said. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat some food. But he answered, I cannot go back with you or accompany you. I will not eat food or drink water with you in this place. For a message came to me by the word of the Lord, You must not eat food or drink water there, or go back by the way you came. He said to him, I am also a prophet like you. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, Bring him him back with you or to your house, so that he may eat food and drink water. The old prophet deceived him. And the man of God went back with him. He ate his food in his house and drank water. 
While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And the prophet cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, This is what the Lord says, Because you rebelled against the Lord's command and did not keep the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but went back and ate food and drank water in the place that he said to you, Do not eat food and do not drink water. Your corpse will never reach the grave of your ancestors. So after he had eaten food and after he had drunk, the old prophet saddled the donkey for the prophet, he had brought back. And when he left, a lion attacked him along the way and killed him. His corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey was standing beside it. The lion was standing beside the corpse too. And then verses 33 and 34. Even after this, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil way, but began to make... but again made priests for the high places from the ranks of the people. He ordained whoever so desired it, and they became priests of the high places. This was the sin that caused the house of Jeroboam to be cut off and obliterated from the face of the earth. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And Father, many times we come to texts like this and they seem unbelievable to our ears. They seem to fall on us and we don't comprehend it, we don't understand it, we don't know what it means. So Father, we ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would cause us to know what this means and that we ask you to help us learn from it. And in all of this, Father, we ask that you allow us to hear the gospel, the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. The title of the message this morning is, When Doing the Wrong Thing Seems Right. Now, I don't want you to mistake this for a lesson in morality. I, want, I don't want you to mistake this for, you know, just some kind of generic evangelifish Sunday school lesson that you, you might teach kids when you're having them glue macaroni to paper mache or whatever. This is not simply a lesson in morality. This is about doing what is right in the sight of God. And so there are many times in our lives when we are tempted to do that which is not right, even as you hear me say that, I'm sure you can think back over times in your own life where you've been confronted with a choice. You've been at a place where you've been standing at the precipice of a decision. You can do what you know God would have you to do, or you can compromise. And after all, there's always a reason to disobey God. There's always something that makes your disobedience to God seem right. Solomon had many wives because he he was making political alliances. And so, it's, it, you know, in, in his mind, it was okay to disobey this old command from Deuteronomy against having many wives because he's making peace with all of these surrounding nations. In Exodus 17, 6, God tells Moses to strike the rock and water will come out of it. And so he strikes it and then water comes out. But later in Numbers chapter 20, God tells Moses to speak to the rock. And instead, Moses strikes the rock again. Why? Why did he disobey God? Well, because striking the rock worked last time. It seemed like the right thing to do. It's okay for Eve to partake from the forbidden fruit because Satan has convinced her that some kind of goodness is being withheld from her. And after all, she wants all the good that she can get. It seems right at the time. There's always something that seems right about doing, about doing wrong, but Proverbs 14.12 tells us that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. 
And if we look back toward the end of the previous chapter in 1 Kings 12, something seemed right to Jeroboam about building idols to have the people worship in the, in the place of going to the temple. Now, if you remember last week, when we talked about Solomon and we talked about the kingdom being divided, Jeroboam, we, we, Jeroboam was a character in that. He was a, he was a part of that narrative. So the prophet Abijah comes to Jeroboam and he's, he gives him the ten pieces of cloth and he says, you're going to be the king. And then this other lineage, this other part of the kingdom, that's going to be in Solomon's line, but you're going to be the king of this, this new part. You're going to be the king of this new kingdom. And then a promise is made to Jeroboam back in chapter 11. And the promise is that if he'll do what's right, if he'll serve God then his kingdom will last. Listen to what, listen in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 37 and 38. This is God speaking to Jeroboam. He says, I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over Israel. After that, if you obey all I command you, Walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did. I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David and I will give you Israel. I will humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness but not forever. And so that's the promise that God made to Jeroboam. But then look at the end of chapter 12. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 30, Jeroboam said to himself, The kingdom might now return to the house of David if these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. The heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to the king of Judah. So the king sought advice. And then he made two golden calves. And he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this led to sin. And the people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. And so think about this for a moment. Rehoboam is putting a heavy yoke on the people. He's instituting slave labor, high taxes, he's an idolater. He's all of the things Samuel warned about many years earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel warns them about all of the downsides of having a king. Samuel said to Israel, he said that, the, that a king would come in, raise taxes, take their sons and daughters as soldiers and slaves, and bring them under the same kind of bondage that they were in in Egypt. And the people believe that this other guy, Jeroboam, can come to their defense and be a leader for them in the face of tyranny. And it's almost as if they believe he will be the next Moses. But then he builds these golden calves and tells them that these are the gods that brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And so what happened is that their next Moses turned out to be another Aaron. Remember, Moses led the people out of Egypt, and when they got to the bottom of Sinai, Moses went up to commune with the Lord. And while he was gone, Aaron built a golden calf and said, Here, worship this thing. This is what brought you out of Egypt. And now Jeroboam's done the same thing. And this brings us up to speed where we're reading now in 1 Kings 13. And as we look at this topic about doing the wrong thing 
when doing the wrong thing seems right, I want us to see three things that we can always be sure of when we're in this life. First of all, I want us to see that there is always a word from the Lord. Next, I want us to see that there is always a temptation from the enemy. And then finally, I want us to see that there is always a consequence to our disobedience. Let's look at this first point. There is always a word from the Lord. Look at verse 1. A man of God came, however, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. Now as I read that verse, the word however stood out to me. A man of God came, however, from Judah. And I'm reading from the CSB, so you may not have the word however in your translation. But it's important because it's that one word that paints a picture for us. Grammatically speaking, the word however is used to introduce a statement that contrasts or seems to contradict something that has been said previously. And what was said previously was that Jeroboam had instituted idolatry out of a sense of profound personal insecurity within himself. And he said, if I keep letting them go back to Jerusalem to worship, if I keep letting them go back there, they'll leave me and I'll lose my position of power and I won't have a kingdom. See, when someone loves to have power and control, then there is a per- and, and then there's a perceived threat of losing that power and control, they will do anything it takes to quell that threat. It's true what they say. Desperate men do desperate things. So in a time when a desperate man is doing a desperate thing, and in a time when idolatry is rampant in the land, we might think that there's no one left who will be a voice for the Lord. We might think that God has gone silent. We might think that God has turned His back on the the people, but that's not the case. The word, however, gives us hope, because it tells us that in spite of the idolatry, in spite of the compromise, in spite of the immorality in the land, somebody can still hear a word from the Lord. And in a world gone to hell in a handbasket, somebody still has a connection to the throne of heaven. And I want us to know that when we turn on the news and we see politicians that have been corrupt and pastors that have been having affairs and stealing from their churches, when we see that Christian principles are being labeled as bigoted and small-minded, there is still a word from the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 tells us that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So what was the word of the Lord for that time? Look at verses 2 through 3 and then down to verse 5. The man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah. And he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. He gave a sign that day and he said this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. And then of course the altar was ripped apart. And ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given. And so what happens is Jeroboam, Jeroboam he stretches out his hand and he goes to point to him and he says arrest this man. And then as soon as he does his hand withers and then... He prays. He has the man of God pray for his hand. And then his hand goes back to the way it was. And so notice here, there's a few things at work. First of all, notice that empirical powers always feel threatened when they are confronted with the message of another king. 
So notice that this man of God, this prophet, he comes along and he says that there's going to be a man born to the house of David named Josiah. And this man is going to bring reform. And we know later that he does. When we keep reading in the Kings, we go to 2 King, about the 21st, 22nd chapter. Josiah is born, he takes the throne, and he institutes reform, and he wants to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. But until then, the people have to deal with Jeroboam. And until then, the people have to deal with evil kings. But empirical powers always feel threatened when they're confronted with the message of another king. And we see that all through Scripture. King Herod felt threatened by the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, and he ordered the slaughter of the innocents. In the first century, Caesar was threatened by the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. And as a sign that the man of of God's message was true, there were three signs Given First of all, the altar was torn in two, just as the prophet said. Secondly, Jeroboam's hand withered, and then after that, Jeroboam's hand was healed. And so there's three signs, three signs that this was a valid word from God. Now the number three is used in the Bible as a sign of completeness. So when someone was brought before a judge or a king for for a crime they had committed, there had to be two or three witnesses. When no one in the land would dare to stand up against the king, God himself brought three witnesses against Jeroboam. He brought the prophet, he brought the tearing of the altar, and he brought Jeroboam's own hand as witnesses against Jeroboam. So God will raise up a witness against corrupt leaders. In this life, you may get away with your crimes in the highest courts of this land. No one may ever have enough evidence against you, but you'll never get away with unrepentant sin in the courtroom of heaven. I'm sure some of you remember the O.J. trials in the mid-90s. It was a big thing. O.J. Simpson had allegedly killed his ex-wife and her friend, Ronald Goldman, and it, it looked like it was him. He had motivation. He didn't have an alibi for his whereabouts. When the police tried to track him down, he hid and eventually led the police on a chase down the highway. After all, you know, if he didn't do it, why would he run? Eventually, he was placed in custody and brought to trial, and the trial came. And the trial went on for 11 solid months. He had a dream team of lawyers at his disposal. These were the highest profile lawyers money could buy, and they were getting paid so much they could have retired on this trial alone. Eventually, O.J. was found not guilty. There were two things that didn't match. DNA evidence was still kind of new at this time, and forensic scientists admitted that there was a large enough margin of error in trying to decide exactly who all the, blo- uh, who all the, the blood belonged to that They really couldn't tell whether for sure any of it belonged to O.J. And the gloves that were worn by the killer were too small for O.J.'s hand to fit in. So O.J.'s lawyer got up, he looked at the jury, and he said, Well, if the evidence doesn't fit, then you must acquit. And that sealed the deal. Then in 2007, O.J. hired a professional author, and he and that author wrote, wrote a book called If I Did It where he outlined a hypothetical situation where he lays out how he would have killed his ex-wife and her friend if he were going to. And it's almost as if he did it, got away with it, and then rubbed everyone's nose in it. Now, I don't know whether O.J. did it or didn't do it. As far as the jury of his peers is concerned, he didn't do it. But I can tell you one thing. Jeroboam wasn't going to get off as easy as O.J. did. Why? Because there's always a consequence to disobedience. Jeroboam did the wrong thing, and it seemed right. But he's not the only one in this story that does something wrong when it seems right. 
There's always a word from the Lord, but there's always a temptation from the enemy as well. Look at verse 7. Then the king declared to the man of God, Come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. So the king, after seeing the power of Israel's God at work, he says, Why don't you come home with me? The king's going to feed him. He's going to give him a place to stay. He's going to let him sit in the lap of luxury. But what's happening is that the king is trying to manipulate the man of God. If he can get this prophet to come home with him, partake of his food, rest in his house, and maybe even have a place of power and prestige, then maybe reversing the curse on Jeroboam's hand was only the beginning. Maybe he can garner the prophet into bringing power and prosperity back to the kingdom. But if the man of God did this, if he went to the king's house, it could be perceived as a sign of approval of Jeroboam's idolatry. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like a bad offer. But the man of God refuses. He's sticking to his guns. He's not giving in. He refuses to sit at the table of someone who openly turns against the commands of God. And my goodness, we need to do this now. Every election year, every four years, it's the same way. We've got someone on one side of the aisle who wants to give you free stuff, who wants to give you all the things in the world if you'll just vote for them. And we think that the opposite of that has to be the good guy, right? We got someone else promising religious freedom. We got someone else promising conservative values, promising life the way it used to be. And what what we don't realize is they're playing on our desire for the good old days to get in power just so they can lie. See, here's the thing. Back in the 80s, back in the days of the moral majority, back in the days of uh, Nixon and Jerry Falwell, whenever Jerry Falwell was a big-name preacher, the Republican Party realized, my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm going down a bad road here, the Republican Party realized that they could easily get into power if they could manipulate Christians. Because Christians made up a good, or at least people who claimed to be Christians back in the 80s, they made up a good percentage of the population. 70, 70 to 80% of the population claimed to be Christians at that time. Now we're below 50%. Back in the 70s and 80s, at least 60 to 70, maybe even 80% of the population claimed to be Christians. And so the, pop, and so the Republican Party got together and they said, if we promise the, the evangelicals, if we promise the Christians... Anything they want, they'll vote us into power, and then once we get in office, we can do anything we want. And that's what's been happening ever since. So you wonder why nothing's changed? It's because you got people on one side of the aisle who are, who are evil, and then you got another side of the aisle who are also evil, but they lie to you about not being evil, right? And so you don't win either way. When you go to the voting booth, all you vote for is which lies you want to hear. Tell me I'm wrong. And so... The prophet, the man of God, he's not giving in to pressure from this king who is a political figure. He's not going to allow himself to be compromised. He's not going to allow himself to sit in the lap of luxury just so he can eat at the king's table. Why? Because the man of God always has a mandate from God. Look at the mandate in verses 8 through 10. But the man of God replied, If you were to give me half your house, I still wouldn't go with you, and I wouldn't eat food or drink water in this place. For this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not eat food or drink water or go back to the way you came. So he went another way, and he did not go back by by the way he had come to Bethel. And so he can't eat there, he can't drink there, he can't go back the same way he came to Bethel in the first place. He's there to deliver a message and then go back home a different way. 
And so the man of God from Judah seems to pass the test. But then he encounters another offer to sit at another table. But this offer looks different. This time the offer doesn't come from a king. The offer comes from another prophet. The prophet from Bethel invites the prophet from Judah to come to his house... And at first he refuses. But then the prophet from Judah said, I am also a prophet like you. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat food and drink water. And the old prophet deceived him. And the man of God fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. And he went back with him, ate food at his house, and drank water. And he almost resisted. He almost obeyed. And he almost did what he knew was right. And that's the story of people today. They live their entire lives. They might come to church occasionally and they almost repent. They almost give their lives over. Whenever Paul stood before King Agrippa in the book of Acts, King Agrippa looked at Paul and he said, Almost! Thou hast persuaded me to be a Christian. And Paul looked at him and said, I would that everyone were almost and altogether a Christian. The problem with people is many people are almost there, but they're not altogether there. And so the question for us is are we there or are we not? Are we almost and altogether or are we just almost? Because almost isn't going to cut it. Why is it that the man of God wouldn't sit at the king's table? Why is it that he wouldn't sit at the king's table, but he went and gladly sat at the old prophet's table? Because it's easy to avoid sin out in the open. But if that sin can be hidden behind something that looks holy, then it's harder to spot. See, the way magicians are able to do magic tricks is through distraction and misdirection. If they can get your eyes to focus on one spot with one hand, then they, do something with their, then they can do something with their other hand, and it looks like, looks like magic. And it's the art of distraction. It's the art of misdirection. Comedian Dave Chappelle told a story of a time when he was 18 years old and he had to get and he had $60 to get him through the end of the month. And he happened to see this guy running a three-card money game and he kept telling people, "Find the red queen, double your money." And as he kept watching, he noticed the red queen had a very small fold in the corner. And he thought, "I'll get this guy." And so he bets all $60 that he has. He's going to double his money. And he kept watching that card, and he kept watching it, and the guy finally stopped and told him to pick a, pick a card. So he picked that card with the corner folded. It had to be the queen, and what happened? It wasn't. The dealer got his eyes so focused on the fact that the red queen had a fold in the corner that he didn't notice him switch it out for another card with the same kind of fold. And so when you get to the book of Revelation, you'll notice that there is a beast, and there is a false prophet. And the beast is a political power. The false prophet is a religious power. See, it's easy for people who say they're believers to avoid the beast. But what if the beast is only a distraction? What if the beast is dressed up in religious garb? What if the beast looks like you, talks like you, and votes like you? He would be harder to spot. It's easy for the man of God from Judah to turn down the king's offer, but it's harder for him to say no to, the, to a prophet like himself. And see, it's easy for us. It's easy for us to tell other people no. But it's harder for us to tell ourselves no when no one else is around and no one sees and no one's going to find out. 
The initial command for the man of God was you can't eat their food. You can't drink their water. You can't come back home the same way. And we read that and we think that that was just a command for the prophet in that time. And in a way it was. However, there's a principle at work in that command that has remained all throughout the scripture. And if you go to the New Testament, you'll see that principle has remained the same. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 21, the apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. What do we hear all the time from Christians who tell us that, man, you're too strict. Man, you're too old-fashioned. Man, you're, you're so close-minded. What do we hear all the time from Christians, even in our own denomination, who want to ordain homosexuals, for example? They say, well, just come to the table and talk about it. Just come to the table and talk about it. There's nothing to talk about! God's Word is already settled, and we as Cumberland Presbyterians, more so we as Christians, have to decide whose table we're going to sit at. Many Western countries have a one-line military policy, and it goes like this. We will not negotiate with terrorists. And if there's ever a time where the church needs to have a policy like this, it's now. Our policy needs to be that we will not negotiate with those who intend to destroy the integrity of the body of Christ. We need to decide whose table we're going to sit at. And even in your own life individually, you have to determine where you're going to sit. Are you going to sit at the Lord's table and partake of the life that He offers? Or are you going to sit at the table of the enemy and partake of the death that your sin has earned? We've got people in the church today and even people standing in our pulpits that think they can toe that line between life and death and in the end all they're going to reap is death and damnation. Which leads us to our last point. There is always a consequence to our disobedience. And I cannot stress this enough. Look at verses 20-26 through 26 in 1 Kings 13. While they were sitting at the table. While they were sitting at the table. This is important because you cannot sit at the enemy's table and expect nothing to happen. While they were sitting at the table. The word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And the prophet cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says because you rebelled against the Lord's command and did not keep the command that the Lord your God commanded you. But you went back and ate food and drank water in the place that he said to you. Do not eat food and do not drink water. Your corpse will never reach the grave of your ancestors. And so after he had eaten food and after he had drunk, the old prophet saddled the donkey for the prophet... He had brought back. And when he left, a lion attacked. A lion attacked him along the way, the road, and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey was standing beside it, and the lion was standing beside the corpse too. And there were men passing by who saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing beside it, and they went and spoke about it in the city where the old prophet had lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from his way heard about it. He said, He is the man of God who disobeyed the Lord's command. The Lord has given him to the lion, and it has mauled and killed him according to the word of the Lord that he spoke. And so the lion doesn't touch the, lion doesn't touch the donkey. He doesn't even eat the man of God after he kills him. He doesn't hurt anybody that passes by the scene. He just stands there. That lion was almost like a hitman sent to do a job, and he did it. And that animal obeyed God more fully than that man that he killed. 
That mauling stood as a testimony to the holiness of God. You can't compromise holiness. You can't compromise on the holiness in your own life and think you can get away with it. We read that and we're tempted to believe that that stuff is only reserved to the Old Testament. But but in the book of Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 23, the Bible says that King Herod gave a speech to the people and the people heard it and they began to shout, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And then Acts 12, 23 tells us that at once the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by the worms and died. And this this not giving glory to God, it's the same kind of sin that Paul talks about in the book of in the book of Romans, chapter one, when he says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. There's a lot of people who once knew God. There's a lot of people who have been raised to know God. And yet they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. And instead their thinking became worthless and senseless and their hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And then what happens after that? What happens when they begin to misdirect their glory? God turns them over. God delivers them over to a reprobate mind. It said, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts. See, it always starts with a desire. It always starts with people not being able to keep their desires in check. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. See, it starts on the inside. And when you let it fester and when you let it grow, it gets to the outside. And it it says that their bodies were degraded. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. And so what God, and so essentially what's happening is people say, well, I want to live life on my own terms. I want to do what I think is right. I want to live according to my own standards. And you know what God says? Go ahead. Have at it. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual sexual relations for unnatural ones. And the men in the same way also left the natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless, uh, shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. In verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. Think about that for a second. Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they they do what is not right. See, we can't afford to dismiss this story in 1 Kings 13. We can't afford to dismiss it as some fairy tale. We, we have to take these things seriously. We have to take these warnings seriously. So what happened after the man of God died in Bethel? The end of 1 Kings tells us that the old prophet took the body of the man of God and buried him and he wept and mourned because he knew the word that he spoke against the altar at Bethel was going to come to pass. And even after all of that happened, even after all of this happens, Jeroboam still didn't repent. And this was the sin that caused the house of Jeroboam to be cut off and obliterated from the face of the earth. And so what happens after King Herod dies in Acts chapter 12? Right after Herod dies, right after he is consumed by the worms, 
Acts 12.24 tells us that the word of God spread and multiplied. So two kings die because of their own disobedience. Two kings die because they misdirected glory. And we get two different responses. Or two, I should say, rather, two men died because they misdirected glory. Jeroboam hadn't died yet. Two men died because they dis, dis, uh, misdirected glory. And we get two different responses. And the first response from Jeroboam is, eh. I mean, that's essentially his response. Meh. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn around and do what's right. He continues in his idolatry. But yet in Acts chapter 12, when King Herod dies, that opens up an opportunity for the Word of God to spread and multiply. And when people see King Herod die, they realize there's something to this. See, when someone dies because of their own disobedience, when someone dies as a result of their own sin, we need to take heed and hear the message that their life is sending. In Romans 9, Paul talks about how there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And then he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 21 through 23, he says, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And then here's the kicker. Here's the, here's the verse that really messes with your theology a little bit. He says, What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, Endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. And so what's Paul saying there? He's saying that there's going to be some people, there's going to be some people who die as a consequence of their own sin. And their life is going to stand as a testimony to the rest of us. And God's going to show His mercy in that. Because sometimes, in order to see the magnitude of God's mercy, we have to see the magnitude of His wrath. Sometimes, in order, in order to understand how good you have it, you've got to see how bad it could be. I'll say that again. Sometimes, in order to see how good you have it, you've got to see how bad it could be. Your life is going to send a message. You can either glorify God through your obedience to the gospel or you can live under the wrath of God and allow your life to be a warning to those who will not honor God. And so what's it going to be this morning? Are you going to repent and turn to Jesus or are you going to live life on your own terms? And see, we hear that and we think, well, I repented a long time ago. Listen, you may have gotten saved a long time ago and you're, and you, and you're still saved now if you were really saved. But every day, there is a pull on your heart, draws you back to Jesus, and it's up to you to respond to that call. Listen, life, your life with God is so much better when you commit yourself every day. You might be saved, you might really have a relationship with God. And I'm not talking heaven and hell, but I'm talking about how you live your life. Life with God can be so much better when you commit yourself every day to following Jesus, to learning from Jesus. You're not getting saved again and again but you are recommitting yourself every day to learn from Jesus, to know Jesus. And, you, and whenever you do that, you might suffer, you might lose everything you have, but you know what you'll have left? Jesus. Friends will leave you, family will leave you, eventually the high will wear off, eventually you'll run out of drink, eventually things will get bad. And if you know Jesus, your suffering will have meaning. Everybody suffers. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Everybody suffers. You know what the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is? When a Christian suffers, it has meaning. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, your suffering doesn't mean anything. You can't do anything with it. It doesn't do anything for you. 
But if you know Jesus, then your suffering can be used to form you and shape you into the image of Christ. This morning I'm going to pray for us. And as we sing, you can come up here and pray. And you can come up here and pray. You can come here and pray at the altar. Or you can kneel at one of these front benches and we'll pray with you. And if you need healing this morning, we'll pray with you. I just want you to leave here this morning having a fuller knowledge of who God in Christ is for you. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is a hard word this morning, but I feel like it's for us. Lord, I felt your spirit here this morning, and so I know you're at work among us. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to revive whatever in us that may be dead or on life support. Father, I pray that if our relationship with you has gone cold, I pray that you would light us on fire. I pray, Father God, if there's any areas in our lives that we haven't surrendered over to you, that we would surrender those areas over to you. Lord, you sent your Son to give us life, and life more abundantly. And Father, we want to partake of the life that you offer. And so, Father, we ask that you would remove every sin and weight in our lives that would, that would keep us from partaking of the life that you offer. We ask it all in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.